Welcome to River's Edge Church Podcast. Each week we strive to bring you biblically accurate, exegetical preaching of God's Word so that you might belong, believe, and become like Christ. We hope that you will find this week's message beneficial in your walk with Christ. The reason I'm excited is, is because we're going back into Exodus. Now, I've told everybody here, I, I struggle <laughs> preaching topically. If you know me, um, I struggle with it because I've seen such bad attempts at it. But I, I, it's a place where I know I need to push myself. So I, I try to regularly return to preaching on topics like depression. We did our vision, and we have a couple others coming up in the, um, you know, further on in the year. But I love preaching from the Bible. I love being able to go to a passage in the Bible and go, hey, man, like, look how cool this is. And I get it. I'm a biblical nerd, so I get excited about really dumb stuff that is, look, it's a big deal, but at the same time, you're like, wow, you're really excited about that. Um, it's a little much. So, uh, but I try to impart that on you. So hopefully you'll get something from it. And so where we're going to start today, though, is I couldn't think of a better way of ramping up into Easter and the celebration of who Jesus is and the work he's done then celebrating the same thing that he celebrated right before he committed his life for us. And so we're going to be looking at the Passover. And it just so happens it's in Exodus 12, which is great. But we're also going to look at the Passover throughout the years. So we're going to start, though, at the very most important place, which is the Passover. And so if you want to turn to your passages there, you can. It's going to be in Exodus 12. Um, and I know it sounds weird to even mention the words Easter, because I feel like we just started this year. But literally, Easter is like five Sundays away. Like it's, it's right there. I mean, it is crazy how quick it's come. And um, <clears throat> for those who have you know, been here recently, maybe you weren't here at the end of last year, we have already gone through the first 11 chapters and part of chapter 12 in Exodus because we, we spent a lot of time with the plagues, and we, we spent a lot of time on the plagues. And um, we stopped right at this passage as we celebrated Christmas and, and the understanding of God's firstborn and Israel being the firstborn, we looked at those connections. And so picking back up now, we're looking at what all that actually meant. And there's so much tie-in here um, that I needed to give it you know, some time to do it. But what's interesting is, is the connection that we don't seem to have with Passover. I don't know about you, but I grew up, Passover was definitely an Old Testament thought. And it never translated into a New Testament type of idea. Like, I could see the likeliness. Like, it wasn't like it was like, oh, there's no connection. But it's just like, oh, that's a thing that used to happen, and we don't do that because that's weird. Um, and so instead, what I want to do is just kind of maybe open our eyes up to what God intended it to be. And perhaps think about, are we celebrating this properly? Like, is this something we should consider? Uh, and I don't have all these answers. Hopefully we'll explore them together. Maybe we'll find out some answers ourselves. Um, but I am excited because the more and more I dig into this, the more and more I see just how magnificent God's plan really was and just how incredible this one little thing, this one little incident was foreshadowing something so much greater down the road. So if you're already at Exodus 12, you're in the right place. I'm going to have my brother Mark come down. He is going to use his wonderful deep voice. Um <laughs> Um, to serenade us to the first 13 verses of this chapter. 
<laughs> the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month is to be the beginning of months for you. It's the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, they must each select an animal of the flock according to their father's families, one animal per family. If the household is too small for the whole animal, that person and the neighbor nearest his house or are to select one based on the combined number of people. You should apportion the animal according to what each will eat. You must have an unblemished animal, a year-old male. You may take it from either the sheep or the goats. You are to keep it until the 14th day of this month. Then the whole assembly of the community of Israel will slaughter the animals at twilight. And put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses where they eat them. They are to eat the meat that night. They should eat it roasted over the fire along with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or cooked in boiling water, but only roasted over fire. Its head as well as its legs and inner organs. You must not leave any of it until morning. Any part of it left until morning, you must burn. Here is how you must eat it. You must be dressed for travel, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. You are to eat it in a hurry. It is the Lord's Passover. I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and strike every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, both people and animals. I am the Lord. I will execute judgments against all the gods of Egypt. The blood on the houses where you are staying will be distinguishing a distinguishing mark for you when I see the blood. I will pass over it. No plague will be among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Word of God. So, in my experience, and I think it's a pretty familiar one for both of us, um, Passover, at best, is a story. And the few times that we've actually had, maybe had conversation with it, is with maybe some of our Jewish friends who still practice this. Um, that's really the only exposure I ever had. Is I had, I had a friend of mine who was Jewish growing up, and he was like, yeah, we have Passover. And I was like, well, what's that all about? And he told me, and I didn't understand it. Um, I was like, that's a weird thing. Uh, and it felt, I mean, and that was just a reality, like it felt kind of that way, but what seems to be something unusual is how much of the Israelite identity is about the Passover. How much of their understanding, how much of their view of the world is based out of this particular practice, um, and specifically this particular event. Um, it if you uh, would look through and continue reading in some of these passages, we will do and as we'll explore. Um, this, this event was so important that it marked the beginning of the ancient Jewish calendar. Now, that calendar did change. Um, as a matter of fact, it's weird. I, I was researching because I thought, surely, this did not change. It definitely changed. Um, it had to do with the Byzantine Empire. It changed more to the September. It's connected to Ramadan, if I'm correct, right? Or uh, it's connected to the, 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 there's one in September. Um, I think it's that, but I might be wrong. But <clears throat> prior to that, God himself ordained it. Like this was this is how important it is, that your whole year would now be accustomed to this. <clears throat> it was the, weirdly enough, the inauguration of this nation that was chosen by God to be raised up. Up to this point, Israel did not exist. This was the part that was kind of like, I just you don't think about this. Israel did not exist before then. They were not a people. They, 
They, they weren't. They weren't like a nation. They were a family. That was it. That was the only thing they were. They were just a family that got really too big. Okay? That was, they just outgrew all their homes. But they weren't a nation. They didn't have a king, right? Because what do nations have? They have a king. They have a government. They have some type of rules. They didn't have any of these things. They were just people. And worse yet, they were the worst kind of people, right? They were slaves. And yet we see here the reason that the Passover is so important is because this is when God said, you are now a nation. You are something more than just individuals who happen to live next to each other. You are now community. What the Passover, and essentially what the Passover becomes, is really the beginning of a long, extensive training period of God trying to teach the Israelites how to live amongst themselves in a way that represents God. How to live in community. How to live in a redeemed community. Up to this point, that had never happened. There had never been a nation. God had always picked little families, right? He went to Abraham, he went with Noah, he had Adam and Eve, but there was never a nation. And now God has taken a group of people, and he says, you are now going to be a nation. We'll, we probably won't get there anytime soon, but at one point, God will tell this nation, I have chosen you to be priest, to represent me to the rest of the world so that the whole earth would know who I am through you. Growing up, when I would, um, I would always struggle with this idea that the Israelites were chosen. I don't know about you, but I was like, man, that does not feel very democratic, you know? That does not feel very um, godlike because how do you have favorites? Because it felt like he had a favorite, right? It felt like, well, these people were chosen and no one else was chosen. Did, not, did God not care about the rest of the world? Was he just like blowing off the rest? Like, I guess too bad for you guys. You're not Israelites, so you're going to hell. I, I just didn't understand. I was just like, it seemed pretty cut and dry. God liked the Israelites, but it didn't seem to like anybody else. What's going on here? As I've gotten older and I've studied, I realized, no, I was missing the whole point. God chose the Israelites, and he gave them a, um, a very specific responsibility. Uh, this morning during, um, I'm <laughs> still Ryan's, uh, some of his, the part of the study he did. He was leading the study on Exodus 12 this morning, and he talked about this word before, which means first uh, born, right? And there's a whole joke to it that if I get into it later, I might slip it in. You'll, you'll have to keep your ears up for that. Um, <laughs> so this idea of the firstborn is a theme that has been running through Exodus, and it's really low-key because God mentions it about three other times. Just real brief. He's like, whew. And you, and you just pass over it because there's so much other stuff going on. I mean, you've got frogs multiplying by the millions, and you've got the Nile turning into blood. The last thing you're like is like, oh, God said firstborn here. That's weird. But there is something really important there. This idea of firstborn is the same idea of being chosen. In my little immature brain, all I could think of was chosen was like, oh, you're, you're treated special because you're better than everybody. That was the way I looked at it. Instead of, oh, you've been selected for the hardest task possible. Like, you've been selected to take on the burden and the responsibility of showcasing God to the rest of the world. Even though you're a broken and, 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 and hard-headed and, and resistive child, God wants to mold you into something far greater. This firstborn idea ties in heavily into this Passover. And we'll see it because God talks about it specifically about this firstborn. But it's important to get that concept of it's not a, 
it's not a, um, a physical thing. Because we know that Israel's not really God's firstborn. He's not a, they're not the, the first created one. They're not the first covenanted ones. Yet he calls them his firstborn. And we see this lineage because prior to this, the three great Abrahamic-related um, children that lead up to this are three not firstborns who were given the right to be a firstborn. So we see right before this, the most important one in the eyes of these people would be Joseph, who got them to Egypt, who saved the nation, and eventually his family would be enslaved. And he was the first predecessor. Well, guess what? Joseph wasn't the firstborn or the secondborn or the thirdborn or the fourthborn. Joseph was the seventh. He was all the way at the bottom. Was he 11? Did Joseph? Yes, he was like 11. We'll get there. Joseph wasn't close to the firstborn. But God gave him a vision. All of your brothers are going to bow down to you. And like all brothers, they're like, no, that's not going to happen ever. Um, and they allowed their pride to lead them down a horrible path. What they didn't realize was because that path was going to be something God used for his good. And Joseph was going to be given the responsibility and the role of the Behor, the firstborn. Prior to that, there was Jacob. Jacob was the secondborn. His brother Esau and Jacob were twins, and Esau was born first. So Esau was the firstborn, and he was the one who was doted on. He was the one who was trained and prepared to be the Behor. And But Jacob wanted that position. And so he tricked his brother Esau, and he fooled his, his father into giving him this blessing to be the firstborn. Yet he wasn't. But what's interesting is, is that Jacob, through some maturity and through some physical breaking, as well as some mental breaking, learned to mature into that responsibility. Prior to Jacob was Isaac. Isaac wasn't the firstborn, and it wasn't even Isaac's fault. It was from the failure of his father. But because his father failed, Isaac was still not the firstborn, yet God blessed Isaac that you will be the first one. I will treat you and bless you as if you were. And what we learn is it's not about the role that you're born into, it's the position that you've been given. And God can use any of us. No matter how broken we are or where we start in life, God wants to use us for some purpose. He has taken the least likely group of people, right? Like if you were going to go, man, I want a nation to represent me, I think I'll choose the strongest nation to represent me. Instead, he doesn't. Instead, he goes to a group of people who aren't a nation, who are slaves, who own nothing, and says, I'm going to make you my nation. You are now going to be my firstborn. And so what we see is, as this inauguration of this nation comes, we see God really kind of laying out a couple of faithful responses, a couple of faithful things. Um, the first is in the response so for nine plagues, God had spared Israelite from the worst of the plagues. So when the Nile was blood, when, the, when there was frogs and flies, when there was hailstorms, when there was darkness, the Israelites were preserved. They didn't experience these things. They didn't have to go through what the Egyptians and the rest of that nation were experiencing. They were protected. And God would specifically tell Pharaoh or tell Moses, the Israelites are, you know, the, for the people who live in the land of Goshen, they're going to be fine. 
They won't experience this. In fact, Pharaoh was so impressed. This was the thing that got really Pharaoh to begin understanding, oh, maybe this, maybe this Yahweh is a thing. When the hailstorm came and destroyed every livestock, except for all the livestock in Goshen. Except for the crops in Goshen. When the land was covered in flies, but, no, but none of the Israelites were dealing with it. When the boils were on everybody's skin, except for the people of the Israelites. When darkness not just clouded the, the nation, but clouded every individual that was an Egyptian's eyes. And it was like a weight bearing upon them. The Israelites didn't even have to worry about that. What's interesting is, none of these things afflicted the Israelites, and nothing they did, was, was, it wasn't the result of anything that they did. Nothing was demanded on them. God just said, I'm setting you aside. Over and over again, I'm going to set you aside. You don't have to worry about this, because I've chosen you not to worry about this. But here we are on the last plague, the most dangerous and deadly of the plagues. For the first time, Israel... This unborn nation was subject to the same plague that the Egyptians were. They now were exposed and vulnerable. Israel was going to be asked to participate in part of their salvation. Now this is where maybe some of my reformists will be very mad. <laughs> like, like we don't play a role. I don't know how free will and God's omnipresence and the omnipotence works. But I know that they have to exist in some type of tension. Because at some point, we are given the option of whether or not we choose to trust and believe and follow God, but we don't get to that point without God exposing himself to us. And I don't know how it works. I just know it does. And that's the best thing I can point you to. The same thing happens here with the Israelites. For the first time, up until this moment, their salvation had been granted to them without any distinction. If you lived in Goshen, if you were born from Abraham, you were safe. But now, in the face of death, this protection was no longer guaranteed. It wasn't a promise that would be kept if you just existed. If you just kept doing what you normally do. Israel was now being commanded to take a step of obedience. They were basically being asked this question, will I trust in God or trust in Egypt? Will I put my faith in Yahweh, the unseen creator, or will I put my faith in the Pharaoh, the supposed son of Ra? Who am I going to trust? Now, Believe it or not, this will become the recurring theme for the rest of Exodus. For the entirety of this book, the next 30-odd chapters, this is going to be the theme. It's going to keep popping up over and over again. Because you're going to find that God is easily able to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. It will take them no time at all. In fact, if you read the last bit of that passage, he told them, he's like, hey, you need to go to bed with your sandals on. You need to eat in a hurry. Because in the morning, we're dipping. We're out. We are on the road. He sounds like my dad, right? Like when, when you know you got to get somewhere, dad's like, it's 6 a.m. We are out the door. 6 a.m., we better be in that car. We will be figuring out what we need to do for the rest of the weekend. 
It will take 40 years. Okay? So it takes God almost no time at all to get the uh, Israelites out of, the, um, out of Egypt. But it's going to take 40 years for God to remove the Egypt out of the Israelites. 40 years to get the Egypt out of them. Over and over again, he's going to remind them. Over and over again, he's going to question them and test them. Who are you going to trust? Because God's point wasn't, I'm going to go save a bunch of slaves. I'm, I'm going to go save a bunch of oppressed people. No, God's point was, I'm going to go make a nation of ambassadors to the rest of the world. I'm going to use Israel to showcase who I am. They're going to be the physical representation of me. They're going to be my firstborn. They're going to do the things that I would do. They're going to care about the things that I care about. They're going to go about their business the way I would go about my business. That's what they were called to do. That's what Passover meant. This final act of Warner will also become the first act of a nation. We look at um, 12.2, 12.3, and 12.6. 12.2 says this, this, this month will be the beginning of the months for you. It is the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, they must each select an animal of the flock according to their father's family, one animal per family. And then you are to keep it until the 14th day of this month. And then the whole assembly of the community of Israel will slaughter the animal at twilight. See, Israel was not Israel yet. There was no Israel. They did not exist yet. They weren't a nation. But at this point, Israel, outside of being a hodgepodge collection of miserable slaves and random nomads, had had zero impact as a group of people. But you see, God had a plan. God was going to take this collection of lesser thans and nobodies of a bunch of slaves, and he's going to turn them into a nation of priests. But in order to do that, it's going to take training and time and constantly learning how do you be a nation, and not just any nation. How do you be a nation that represents Yahweh? How do you live in such a way and in such a community that God can be seen through it? And the Passover plays its role in this. It was the very first lesson and the very first exam. It was a really big exam. That's like showing up on the first day of school and getting a pop quiz immediately. And them telling you, all right, this is going to count as your final grade. Okay, just a heads up. Final grade right here. First day of school. The Israelites were to come together as a community. And they were supposed to reorient themselves away from Egypt and toward God's calling for them. That's why he starts off with something so sim simple, a calendar, right? Something so simple as this is how we're going to start our year. But it makes sense. I was like, why is that? That seems like the weirdest thing to start with. Like you would think God's like, all right, I can get the, the whole like, I need you to make a sacrifice thing. Okay, I get that. But he doesn't start there. He starts with, all right, you're going to remember this day and you're going to mark it in your calendars. <coughs> this is the first month of your year now. And I'm like, that's random. Why? Well, if you look at the Egyptians, everything they do in general, but specifically their calendar, is focused at two very specific things. 
It's focused at the sun, a.k.a. Ra, the god. And it's focused at the Nile, a.k.a. Happy, the god. And yes, he has a delightful name. You're welcome. I know. And like all things Egyptian, it was heavily tied to the worship of their god. See, the Egyptian calendar started in September. And it was tied to the floods and tied to the crops. And so when September rolls around, the sun is there. It's at one of its best moments. It's warming up, and the flooding of the Nile happens. Both of these coincide. And so it becomes the first day of the year. It's where they celebrate. And what are they celebrating? They're gods. God is telling the Israelites, from now on, you're going to orient your calendar to me. Now, we don't serve a God who's controlled by the seasons, right? We serve a God who made the seasons. More importantly, we serve a God who's personal. And I think this is what I love so much about this. He took a personal matter and said, remember that time where I stepped in for you, where I redeemed you, where I heard your cries and your oppression, and I came in and I rescued you? That's what you're going to remember. That's what we're going to start our year off. You're just going to start the year off with a celebration. And remember how much I loved you, even when you didn't even know me. Because if we go back to the beginning of Exodus, when these slaves were crying out, they weren't crying out to God. They were crying out, and God heard them. They, they, didn't, they didn't know who Yahweh was. They didn't know this God. He had to make himself known to them. So even in their distance, God heard their oppression and responded. So now their calendar their annual reminder was what God had done here in Egypt. It was an annual reminder of their freedom. So as a community now, they had something to base themselves off. But then it transfers into a gathering. The next thing they're supposed to do is, as a community, they're supposed to select the appropriate sacrifice. And what I love is there's a plan for those who have plenty and there's a plan for those who don't. In this, it talks about how, you know, you're supposed to select this perfect animal, unblemished, innocent, year old. But for those who don't have enough, get together with other families. For those who don't have the, rec the required sacrifice, come together as multiple families and sacrifice together. Come under one roof together. Eat dinner together. Serve God together. This was not an individual act of preservation. We live in a world of individual acts of preservation. Our gospel is often individual. Our responses are considered individual. Our pursuit of God becomes individual. We've got every self-help book out there. You know, you've got to talk to yourself positively in the mirror every morning, right? The best conversation you're going to have with yourself today is the one you're going to have with yourself. You know, like those kind of things. If you can't do it yourself, you know, you've got to figure out a way. We, start, we live in this independent culture, and that is not what God wanted for this nation. I don't believe that's what God wants for us. And he's showcasing it through these small little steps here. Be a community, communal act of obedience. Be a community together. Come together so that all can find salvation. And then it goes to 12.6, a community of obedience the whole community was supposed to come and slaughter their animal together. Now, keep this in mind, okay? 
we have an approximate number of people who leave in Exodus. It's around 2 million people. I know. When I was a kid, I was like, like, what is this, like, a, like 400 people maybe? 500? No. Millions of people. So then I started thinking about, well, how many sheep is that? <laughs> Holy smokes! That's a lot of sheep. Because they all got to eat, right? Like, so you know it's enough that everybody ate. So worst case scenario, like, there's at least 10 people per animal, right? And worst case. I don't know how many people and how many, but I do know that it had to have been a sight to see that many people, right? The whole community comes together. Millions of people, and they're killing things. That's terrifying, if nothing else. Like, that is an absolute terrifying thought. This is what's interesting. The first, the, the first part of this is they come together as an act of obedience to God, and they don't quite understand why, right? God doesn't tell them exactly why they're doing this, like why does it have to be this way? He doesn't give them full details. He says, do this. And for the most part, it's because God said so, right? We've heard that before. Have you ever had that, you know, that parental response or parental question? Man, why do I got to do this? Well, because I'm your dad and I said so, right? Now, there are times, there are two reasons why most of us say that. The first one is because we are tired of answering questions. Uh, let's be honest, like we have answered all the questions and we don't want to answer any more questions and we're tired. And so that usually should, I try to tell them, like, look, if I say that, it's not, I just can't, I can't keep explaining things. I'm tired, okay? Well, since God doesn't get tired, then the only other reason must be this reason. Because we are too, we're not ready, we're not mature enough to understand the real reason. Right? Like there are times where, our youngest son wants something, and it's deaf. Like, I can already see this is going to be the most damaging thing he could ever purchase himself, right? Like the whole Red Rider BB gun thing. Right? You can put an eye out with this thing. It's always something like that. And the reality is, like, man, there's something better for you out there. There's a good thing here. I just can't explain why right now. You're not going to get it even if I took the time. You just got to trust me. You got to have faith. The second part of this is because... Not only did they have to have a significant amount of faith and trust in God, but they also were being collectively defiant to Egypt. I want to point you to a verse. I don't have it up here because I'm not, I wasn't cool today to get all my verses in here. But if you go to Exodus 8.26 with me, it reads this. Moses said, Oh, excuse me, I'll start with 25. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Go sacrifice to your God within our country, within Egypt. But Moses said, It would not be right to do that because what we will sacrifice to the Lord our God is detestable to the Egyptians. Moses told them the reason we can't sacrifice in Egypt is because the things we sacrifice you think are deities. You think a lamb... The head of a lamb is on the God of, ha uh, of happy. Like, he's part of the Nile. Like, you, you, you know, the goat is part of death. Like, you don't, you, don't sacri you don't kill these animals sacrilegiously. And yet here, they're doing it in mass, right in front of them, collectively. God was commanding the Israelites to set themselves apart, not only as a community, but collectively across the board and defiantly in front of the Egyptians. It wasn't just, hey, I want to teach you to be a nation. 
It was, I want to teach you how to be a community knowing you're going to get some backlash. Knowing you're going to get a response. Because this would have angered, upset the Egyptians right in their face. How many countless hundreds of thousands maybe? Sheep and goat died. Who were sacrificed. And then lastly, faith in action. We look at 7 through 11. I'm just going to reread this section. Because I think it, it bodes us well to remember it. It says, They must take up some of the blood and put it into the two doorposts in the lintel of the house where they eat them. And they are to eat the meat that night. And they should eat it roasted over a fire along with the unleavened bread and the bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or cooked in boiling water, but only roasted over a fire, its head as well as its legs and its inner organs. And you must not leave any of it until morning. Any part left in the morning must burn. And here's how you must eat it. You must be dressed for travel. Your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you are eat it in a hurry, for it is the Lord's Passover. It was quite possible to do all those other things and still suffer in this plague. It wasn't enough that you picked out the lamb. It wasn't enough that you slaughtered this lamb. It wasn't enough that you ate it after roasting it and covering it with bitter herbs and dipping the matzah into the, in the water, like into the oil. It wasn't enough. Because the thing that mattered, the thing that had to happen was you had to take that blood and you had to apply it to the doorpost. You had to apply it to the doorpost. It wasn't just one thing. It was full obedience. It wasn't just part of it. It was all of it. Because not only did they have to apply this blood, right, they had to, and they, they've done all this process, but then they had to prepare a meal. Later on in this passage, it would tell them, you can't even leave the house. Once you've Put that blood up there. You've got to stay in the house. You've got to stay there. And you're going to cook this meal. And you're going to get all your friends and families that are with you, whatever, whether you're a, a small house or a large family, you're going to get them all in there. And you're going to eat whatever you can eat. And I love it because it says eat fast. So I told you, it's biblical why we eat, you know what I mean? Like we, eat, we eat fast. It's biblical. The Lord said eat it quick. It's the Passover. Okay. But they were to prepare a meal, and they were to prepare it very specifically. Notice it said no leaven. It'll be a whole passage on how, like, you can't even have leaven in the house. In fact, seven days before this meal, you're supposed to get rid of all of your leaven, which is just a fancy word for yeast, okay? So those, those ladies who are breaking their backs over making that sourdough, get it out the house. You're going to have to start over later, you know? You're going to have to start it over later. That's a lot of work. That's a lot of giving up for some ladies, you know? Those guys have no idea what we're talking about. You just go look it up if you want to find out the whole sourdough community you don't even know about and they're supposed to have this very specific bread it's, it's called matzah it's still today you can go to the store you can get you some but you're supposed to get this bread and you're supposed to eat it a very specific way part of the reason was because they were going to have to 
leave. It wasn't just faith enough that they were going to be, they were going to get passed over. It was the understanding that not only are we being passed over, God is going to move. God's spirit is going to move and things are going to happen. And when they happen, we've got to be ready to respond. So God tells them that night, strap up your sandals, have your staff ready, be fully dressed. Be ready. Because the moment dawn comes, it is time to leave. It is time to move. Now, I've been sitting on this passage all week, and I was really wrestling with, like, all right, what do I, what do, I do with this? Like, how do I? There's so much here. Like, it was like drinking from a fire hose. It was just like, I don't know how to, how do I get all of these things wrapped in? Because it's too deep. And what I fell on was, this, it was the reality of the thing at the top. The thing that was most important here is that it's funny how the Passover doesn't carry the same weight in our Western culture today. Right? We don't think about it the same. And time has a way of eroding things. It really does. Things are temporal. But it's important to remember that those Israelites, they went into that house that night as slaves. And they left in the morning free men. And it wasn't anything to do with something that they had accomplished outside of being obedient. They didn't save themselves, right? They didn't work out a miracle. In fact, it's interesting. This is the one plague where, like, Moses doesn't do anything to trigger the plague, right? In fact, he... <coughs> he, last time he saw Pharaoh, he was told, if you ever show your face around here, I'll kill you. That was the response that Pharaoh had to him. What God asked the Israelites is like, I'm going to give you an opportunity here to do something that most people won't understand, that you're not going to understand for a very long time. These Israelites, as they killed this lamb, they would begin to understand as God began to give them the tabernacle and the yearly annual practices that that lamb, that lamb was taking the place of a death that had to happen. See, God had already ordained the firstborn are going to die. Every firstborn animal and every firstborn child are going to perish. That was, that was the deal. The only way redemption could happen is if something died in its place. So carefully and particularly, they chose this animal. They chose a replacement to pay for that death. Because whether we like to, this is a hard thought. I, I was, I, I've been weighing on it. I was like, man, that doesn't sound right. Why would God do that? Well, let's be honest with you. The Israelites had been living in Egypt for 400 years. They weren't Israelites. They weren't worshipers of Yahweh. What, what were they? They were Egyptians. As far as they knew, they were Egyptians. If you live anywhere for 400 years, I've lived in Horry County for 13. I'm a local. <laughs> I am. Try me. You know what I mean? Like, there's like three people in here who've been here longer, okay? All right? Just reality. Uh, I know. I see you looking at me. By the way, you're like, well, maybe, <laughs> but that's the reality. 
They were 400 years. They worshiped Ra. They had given sacrifices to Hopi and Happy, and they had, they had done all of these things. They had worshiped Pharaoh. They were being converted. They had, they didn't even have a chance to forsake. They were already God's enemy. And this ties so much into us because whether we like it or not, we enter the earth in that position. We're, we are literally against God. We are opposed to who God is from the moment we enter earth. We are sinners immediately. And I get it. It's hard. And we have a, we have, it's a weird combination because we have some people who lean hard into that guilt. Like we're so depraved. We're so terrible and they can never get past the shame and the guilt. What's beautiful is God made a way for them. And he told them straight up, like, hey, look, that's what you're going to do. Justice has to be served because God is a just God. And what justice means is somebody has to pay the price. Like, if you just let somebody go, even though they've committed a horrible crime, is that justice? No. Something, somebody has to pay for this. Someone has to take and, and atone you for this, has to redeem you for this. And that's exactly what God does. He tells the Israelites, you've been a sinner just like the rest of Egypt. You haven't worshipped me. You don't even know me. Not yet. I've just been slowly giving you a peek at the hem of my garment. You don't even know what I'm going to do yet. But here's what you can do. And you get to choose. You've got a choice of obedience here. But this is what's demanded. This lamb, this perfect, innocent lamb, is going to pay the price. And you can either give me this firstborn, or you can give me your firstborn. That was the same proposition that he told Pharaoh all the way back, like chapter 3. He tells Pharaoh, give me the firstborn. I want my firstborn. This is the, the firstborn. The, this is the nation that I'm going to anoint and give the responsibility of representing me. I would like my firstborn, please. And Pharaoh's like, no. So God's like, well, then fine. I'm going to take yours. That is your punishment because it's unjust that you keep my child. And so these, this nation that wasn't a nation yet enters into these homes as slaves. And they exit through a bloody entrance. And now a nation is officially birthed. And yes, there's a horrible imagery there, but it's there on purpose. It was intended to remind us of an actual birth. But it was a spiritual birth. Our own spiritual birth is no different. Because here's the reality. We, we enter into this world physically a mess physically hell-bent on destruction and death i love it in, in genesis when noah has come out of the ark and here's the most faithful man on the planet because there was not a lot of people left and he's like you're gonna fill up the earth but man you guys are hell-bent <laughs> on being awful you are evil from the moment that you enter this world But through a spiritual birth, we're given a new life. We're given a new role. We're given this honor of being the behor once again. Because as Exodus says, when I pass over and I see the blood, I will not let destruction fall upon you. God doesn't see who's inside the house at the Passover. God only sees the blood of an innocent lamb on the doorway. I'm going to have the worship team come down and um, 
And as they do, I, I, I want to challenge you this way, because one, I, I'm excited to have Mark come up next week, and he's not going to preach on the, specifically the Passover, but he is going to preach on the continuation of this message. And I hope that you're encouraged by it, because I think it's so important. You're going to hear the gospel a whole lot for the next five weeks. And you may have thought you've heard the gospel, and you might have heard the gospel. But I understand this. There ain't a day that passes we don't need to be reminded of it. We have to preach the gospel every morning we wake up. Every morning. That we get up and we put our feet to this ground. Because here's the reality. I, I am tempted to think that if I pick out the right lamb and I slaughter it with a bunch of my friends, and then I make a good meal that I've roasted over an open fire, and I eat the right matzah bread, and I put the bitter herbs together, that's enough. That I've done everything that I need to do. I'm tempted to think that if I work hard enough, that if I study enough and I know enough about God, that if I, if I help enough people, that that'll be enough. And I tend to forget that God doesn't look at that the only thing he's looking for is did I apply the blood to the outside of my door? Is the door frame covered with the blood of the innocent one? Now some of you might be like me. And you go, well, what does that really mean? I'm going to tell you this. This is what it really means. One, it's first and foremost, it's trusting that Jesus is enough. That's the hard part. Trusting that no matter what sin I've done, trusting no matter how horrible a life I've lived or how many people that I've hurt, how horrible a person I've been, that Christ dying was enough for me. The second part of that is remembering what it cost. And that I can do all these other religious things, but at the end of the day, do I have a relationship? Do I know who Jesus is? Do I know the Lord and Savior? that came into my life and set me free? Do you know the Lord and Savior who came and set you free? Do you have freedom? Or are you just doing some of the things to kind of feel like you might get there? Because if we, and, and this is the landing point, because some of us need to hear that message, and some of us need to be reminded of this. If we have applied the blood, then we, our lives should look like the firstborn of the Creator. The life we live should look like that, like how God has ordained it, that he has set us aside. And not because we got to hit a bunch of rules, right? It's not what it's for. It's not because we need to earn our way into heaven, right? We don't need to earn our way into his presence. It's because he loves us so much that he's given us this responsibility, that he has set us aside for a task and a purpose of representing him on this earth so that other people might know. It wasn't, it's not about us. It's about God's plan, his purpose and his plan. So we're going to bow our heads. I'll be down here in front. Thank you for listening to the River's Edge Church podcast. We want to encourage you to like and follow so that we might reach others with God's good news. You can hear more messages like this at www.theriversedge.church. Have a blessed weekend.